All right, before we get into the episode, I am here for a special announcement with Alex Hyatt because he's got a Kickstarter that he's running and there's about 10 days left. You can still get in on it. He's about halfway there. We want to get him full way there. He's not asking for a lot, but this is a really awesome project. It's not exactly film related, but Alex is film related and we love Alex and maybe you like video games out there, listeners. So, uh... Alex, tell me about this game that you're trying to make. Uh, it's called Dark Stars, and it's it's a space shooter, sort of. Um, when you say space shooter, most people uh, either either roll their eyes or are immediately bored, and that's fine. Uh, the space shooter is like the oldest genre of video games. I'm not is. bored. That's for me. That's video <laughs> games. You know, right, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not seduced by. You know, these uh, whatevers that come out where you got to spend a lot of time. I want to turn on a game and play it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very much um, player-centric. It gets you right into the gameplay. It's, I'm not fussing around with fancy stuff. But um, it's also, so it's, it is a space shooter, but it's not a space shooter because you can't shoot in it. I'm going for a, a little bit different of a setup. So when, when you start up the game, it'll look like a space shooter and it'll feel like one but you can't shoot in it so the combat is is a little different a little weird um it, it'll take some getting used to but it's uh it's a lot of fun and it's very challenging and it'll it'll make you think about force you to think about playing that sort of game in a, in a very different way totally yeah I, I saw the trailer for it which is you know classically funny in the alex hyatt style <laughs> you know you're just a naturally funny person. You put a oh, camera on you and you, it's just an enjoyable experience for all. But basically, yeah, basically you're talking about um, the fact that you, you have to suck souls from like the ships that you get close to. So you have to get near ships, but you can't shoot them. It's a great little concept. I love it. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And it looks great. It looks like a, a, a fun shoot 'em up. That's like my childhood, dude. Like I love that game 1941 or whatever it was yeah, for yeah, NES. Totally. I mean, that's the most fun you'll have playing a game, really, that kind of thing. Yeah. Especially when you don't have to pump fucking quarters in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be for iOS and Windows and what what platforms? Uh, pretty much all the major smartphones. Um, it'll be on Windows Phone first just because that's what I have and that's what I'm programming it on. But um, I'm trying to get an iOS Android uh, release simultaneously as well, um, as well as PC. Nice. The great thing about the Kickstarter too is that it's not like you know these arbitrary like goals or whatever. It's like no, you pay like X amount and then you're basically buying the game in advance. So if you check out the video and and the game looks like something that's up your alley, just throw a couple bucks his way and you're buying your copy in advance and you're funding the project that way. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, um, I mean, I I, I don't have the resources to offer big fancy rewards. Uh, it's pretty austere all around so yeah you get the game uh if you donate five dollars or more nice. uh, as well as you know all the normal things you'd expect your name in the credits and the soundtrack and all that sort of thing all right man well we gotta have you actually on the show again soon yeah yeah definitely be well buddy good you luck too. thanks bye bye Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And Sydney Taylor via Skype. Hello. Sydney Taylor is one of our favorite film Twitter people. 
Hers is Wild Palm City. If you want to follow her, you might be following her already. It's great to have her on the show. Thank you for asking me. It's great to be here. (laughs) I just wanted to ask, is that Faulkner, Wild Palm City? It's from a Mountain Goat song, so he might have cribbed it from Faulkner, but it's a specific reference to a Mountain Goat song with the same title. Right on. All right, so Sydney's here today because we're trying to discuss something that we're not even entirely sure how to discuss. We think we're on like the (laughs) forefront of something here, some sort of concept. Mm -hmm. We're wondering if movies have peaked. That seems to be the crux of it, would you say, John? Yeah, and that's one of those sentences that the first time we said it, you know, your spine tingles a little bit because you don't ever (laughs) want to think anything like that. It's such a gross thing to think. But can art peak? Does art peak? And if it did, did it happen to movies? And the reason we started thinking about this was because I was talking to Sydney a while ago about movies that we'd seen, and she sort of came to this conclusion. He came to this conclusion that you evaluate new movies differently from how you evaluate older ones, right? Yes. And I kind of agreed with you. I do the Mm -hmm. same. So can you, can you tell everybody how you, how you evaluate them? Well, first, okay. So we definitely, it started off talking about Michael Bay. (laughs) Yeah. As all these things do. I think that with recent stuff, I'm just looking for, I think one thing that I said is that I'm way more likely to watch like a romance from, you know, the 30s or the 40s or something than I am something recent because I think that a lot of that stuff, I mean, obviously it's been done and it's been done so well. And, you know, there's plenty of good, you know, stories that have been told over and over again that can be done well. But what really interests me and excites me and fascinates me is stuff that is just super crazy and I think honest like I think that that's a good word for it brutally honest but I don't know I really gravitate towards stuff that I hear whenever I hear a bunch of people saying that they really hated something that it really sucked I get really excited (laughs) That reminds me of, uh, you know, a couple of weeks back, I saw the Dwayne Johnson Hercules movie and I absolutely loved it. Have you seen that one? Yes. Yes. And I loved it. I, I was really surprised. Like I knew I was going to like it just because it's Dwayne Johnson and he's amazing. But I was like, this is really good. Like it was Yeah, I really liked it a lot. I'm glad Um, to hear that. I'm always excited to meet people that uh, dug that movie now because it seems like it's one of those things that should have a cult following, but just doesn't yet. And it's just at that perfect time where it's still like a little bit of a off the beaten path movie. Yeah. And I knew that it wasn't going to, I don't know how it did like box office or whatever. And I knew. I think it was pretty profitable. I looked it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is good, but I feel like Dwayne, like keeps getting these roles that are like almost the gigantic, like franchise type things, but they're just almost, I don't know, like too weird or I don't know, but I thought that that was really great. And I thought a lot of it was kind of like a good, it was just silly and it, it knew it was silly. And I think in my review, 
I only pointed out one thing, which is there is like a fight sequence. It might even be the first one in the movie, but the soundtrack sounds like it's from Venture Brothers. <laughs> like, and I right away, I was just like, oh, yes, this movie is going to be amazing because <laughs> they put this weird, crazy music. And I don't know, I really liked it. And I wish that people had more people had seen it because I. I don't know. You might be the first person that I talked to about it. <laughs> yeah. My whole thing with it is that I, I believe it's the first like truly agnostic sword and sandal movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's a really important thing. And that's a really interesting thing, especially because it holds so firmly to that for the, the duration of the film. It doesn't go back on it towards the end. It doesn't yeah. change its thesis. It really yeah. is consistent in that regard. So I think that's yeah. that's one that's definitely worth checking out uh, if you're listening and you haven't seen that one yet. This is sort of on point. I mean, there's there's this while you're describing this, the word you keep coming back to in a positive is weird. And there's this sense and I do the same thing a lot. I think on this show, I'll, I'll constantly praise things as being sort of unexpected and weird. And like right. mm-hmm. really what draws me into a movie now is if it throws me for a loop, yes. um, particularly a newer one. But it's starting to branch out to the point where like, where, where I'm watching anything, like now I'm starting to dig up all these like old, like I'm looking into rural African productions of Shakespeare and like all these mm-hmm. very strange, like outer fringes of cinema type cinema, because I feel like, you know, the base core of um, narrative cinema, like at this point, I mean, how many lesser versions of Casablanca do I need to see? Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, the, what you were saying with the romance is like some of them have been done so well already mm-hmm. you almost can't conceptualize sitting through a lesser version of it yes and i think you know right now i'm getting more and more interested in stuff that comes from comes from different perspectives and i think if you're going to do a concept that's been done a million times already it needs to come from a different point yeah. of view and you know, if I'm going to go, okay, like romance, if I'm going to go see one, I'm more likely to go see one that's done by a black woman or a gay man or whatever, because it's someone else's view. Yeah. There's this sense that those floodgates all of a sudden are open and now you should get a backup of like a thousand years of those stories not even being told really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think, like I said, I don't even, I don't think we were recording yet when I said it, but I can't remember now. Um, Breaking the fourth wall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If it hasn't peaked or if we don't want it to peak, it's like, it has to be from different points of view. Yeah. And if you're going to do the same stories, then it needs to be coming from a different place. And if it is going to be, you know, as far as evaluating stuff differently, if I am going to watch a movie by a white male director, it needs to be something other than, you know, a guy is going to go get revenge for (laughs) something or... He's well, that jerk, said, isn't but, that pretty much what Hercules was? But Hercules was a little bit different because it it was like he spends the whole movie trying to explain that he's not actually this like mythical, like he's just a regular guy. And I think that that really brought a different 
aspect to the character. Like it just made him more likable and it wasn't as much this kind of, I don't know, Superman hero worship type thing. I kind of tried to bring him down to earth and show his, you know, his real relationships. And I don't know, it was just something different and like weird. (laughs) What's interesting about those type of movies to me, and I'm glad you brought up Superman because it's like the perfect example, is there's this whole strata, I feel like, of particularly action movies where they pull out these properties that like nobody particularly likes and nobody's particularly (laughs) interested in. Yeah. And then they try to do them. And they do them in this way that's like sort of serious at the same time and then like sort of apologetic. Like, do you remember in (laughs) Superman Returns when they were supposed to say truth, justice in the American way and then they couldn't even bring themselves to do it. So he just says truth, justice and all that other stuff. (laughs) And like, I feel like if you can't if you can't like look the, the motto of Superman in the face. Yeah. Then you need to make a new myth figure. Well, and that's okay. So I saw Jurassic World last week and I don't have either of y'all seen it yet. I haven't. I can't do it. I can't bring myself to do <laughs> okay. it. This summer well, I've, I've checked out from all of them. Yeah, it's, I mean, I went and saw it because I love dinosaurs and I love, I actually love all three. So I had to go see it and it was like 75% references to the first Jurassic Park, but it was done in this really bizarre way where sometimes I didn't know if they were trying to like wink at the audience, like give a little thumbs up. But then sometimes it was like they were flipping off people that bought a ticket because they recognized the logo. Mm. Like there's a part in the movie where they find, I won't spoil it, but they find like an artifact that's in a very famous scene from the first movie and they they literally said it, it jeff fight. goldblum <laughs> <laughs> i wish if he i don't know if he'd been in that it might have been a different story but but they set it on fire and there's a part where they have uh the underwater sea dinosaur which was not as prominent in the movie as i was led to believe from the trailer and posters yeah they were really hyping that one up so yeah. it's not really a dinosaur. That's just a sea creature. That's yeah, just a fish. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't even, even, it was a cool fish, but it wasn't even was in there cool that fish. much. But they feed it jaws. Like they feed it a great white shark. <laughs> it was so weirdly lazy. Like, I don't know that the people that made it even knew what they were doing or knew what message they were trying to send with all these different weird references and callbacks and stuff. I think you can hide a lot of incompetence behind references because it's almost like giving your viewers like little Xbox points for everything they get. (laughs) And then for some reason they feel like they've accomplished something for getting it. But like, Mm -hmm. I think lightly satirical is the most chicken shit approach to any movie you could take. Yeah. You know, especially a sequel, especially to a sequel where, the original is so fucking good. Yeah. And mostly because it takes itself seriously. Yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park, aside from everything else brilliant about it, which now I'm seeing a lot of people claim that like the original wasn't that good, which get the fuck off. The original is (laughs) impeccable. But one of the most interesting things about it is like, it's one of the only movies I've ever seen, period, where the animals act like actual animals. 
Yeah. And like there's yeah. that degree of thought put into it because, yeah. you know, it's Spielberg at the top of his game. So there's that degree of, of sort of precision and insight into that movie. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to the average audience, it's almost impossible to understand how hard that is to do. I think to the average yeah. filmmaker, it's almost impossible to realize how hard <laughs> right. that is to do. Yeah. I couldn't do that. No. Yeah. When you make a sequel to it, your choices are to kind of either try to to outdo or match Spielberg at the top of his game <laughs> or to pretend like, you know, you're fucking Kurt Cobain, you know, to do like the too cool for school approach to it. Yeah. And you well, can hide a lot say, of failure in that, I think. Yeah. And it, they try to do like both. I, I don't know. But I mean, the first one worked for me because it's a very... It has a lot of very scary, cynical themes and ideas in it, but it's like an optimistic movie. I mean, it has a happy-ish, relatively happy ending, but Jurassic World was just, it was mean and just cynical, and I don't, I don't need that. (laughs) Yeah, it was like Terminator 4. Where, I mean, the Terminator movies aren't optimistic the way Jurassic Park was, but, you know, one and two leave you with a little bit of hope. They delay or end nuclear war at the end of each of them. But Terminator 4 (laughs) just drags into this dog pile of fucking sad people and crew cuts for two hours because it's it's just easier to do. Yeah. And you can do it and look competent. Yeah. The bare minimum competency is much lower than to do something like what Cameron or what Spielberg was doing. Yeah. I felt cynical afterwards about like the state of film (laughs) and it, but it wasn't even, I don't know. A lot of times with spectacle movies, like I can, I can forgive a lot if it's exciting or if it looks good or whatever, but it was just, it was very boring and I don't know. I don't know. Would you say dishonest? Yeah. Yes, I would say it was because that's been that's been coming up for me with a lot of these movies. I look at them and I just yeah. think they're dishonest. I think yeah. that's probably the key to you know the popularity of a movie like The Room, then, which is so honest. Like it, it's everything that he is just on screen and every like every single line. It's like it's just perfect auteur film that I think people. You know, they they respond to it on the superficial way of like, oh, it's so bad. It's good. Oh, it's so funny. It's so stupid. But what they're really looking for is honesty in filmmaking. And that's what they get with a movie like that. Maybe that's why the age of the ironic cult classic kind of really coincides with the age of sort of the the cynical blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could almost draw a graph. Well, and I mean, people, I don't know. Like, I don't think I don't know that people want to see an honest movie. I mean, and I think that that an argument could be made. I don't know if I want to make it right now, but for that, that kind of viewing stuff ironically or like the so bad it's good type of thing. I think that that's like an unwillingness to emotionally connect with something. Yeah. It's jerking off. I think a lot of times they're viewing honest work in an, a dishonest way where yeah. they're not being truthful towards what's really compelling about it. Because the thing that's mm-hmm. compelling about the room is that you, 
you've seen weird sort of softcore badness similar to it before, but you haven't really seen it in this way where it has this consistency of uh, an almost faulty vision of what an American movie is. And like, there's this mm-hmm. great distance of his, his foreignness to it. And it's just, it, it really is just this honest work. But, you know, like you said, people are viewing it as cynically as possible. But I think I, I want to believe that some grain of its honesty is getting into them that maybe they're afraid to say because they're in a room full of friends throwing spoons mm-hmm. at the fucking screen. <laughs> but I, I want to believe that something's getting yeah. inside them where they recognize, you know what, this is a really unique work. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. And I think that that's part of, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't even call myself like a writer or a critic or anything. And I do like, I talk about movies and I write about movies, but my only, the only reason why I do it other than just it's fun. And I like talking to people about it is because, you know, I see these movies that people just pretty much the consensus is that they're bad. And when I look at them and I see something good in it, I want other people to see it too. Like, I don't, I'm not about, like, I don't want to discourage anyone from seeing something I don't like. Like, I'll write about something that I don't like, but my, I don't know, if I have a goal, it's to get someone to look at something in a different way and not just kind of, I don't know. Yeah, that seems to be very similar to how we feel here at Smug Film. You know, when we write about pieces, that's, that's really the angle we're going for. I mean, you know, me and John, we saw an advanced screening of Chappie and we saw a movie that really nobody else seemed to be seeing. Like it would, the, yeah. the, the critics, they just demolished it. Well, they the consensus came it. in on Twitter before anybody even saw it. Exactly. Which yeah. I never like when that happens. That's always yeah. a little suspect there's and weird. This, yeah, there's this sense now that people, I mean, people act like they're investors in all these movies now. You know, they sit there and they read... Average, yeah. including me. You see, I sit there and read, you know, box office mojo when something comes out. And then you get down there and you like figure out like how much money Avengers made. And then you, you know, you, you get this sense of like evaluating these things by how much money they made. And ultimately that doesn't mean anything. You yeah. know, if we're yeah. talking about these things as artistic works, which should be things done for the sake of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the opposite of what you should be looking at. You shouldn't be the one worrying about how much money movie you like is making you should be worrying right. about everything else or ever using that as a justification yeah. of that's why it's bad because like, it didn't yeah. make money because well, if you care about art that should never really in- enter into it whatsoever what really worries me about this is two things in conjunction one if you look at the state of fine art you know paintings and sculptures and all that which is as barren a wasteland now as that field has probably been in 2000 years mm-hmm. i mean the the state of just being a painter now is, it's almost a joke. And I think you can pretty much date that to when art became a um, capital investment that you expected Mm -hmm. to buy and then make money on 10 or 20 years later. Right, a whole return. Yeah, it used to be, you know, the Medici's, they would pay for a whole bunch of artists, but then they wouldn't go and resell it 20 years later. It was, you know, it was ornamentation (laughs) for them. It was was done for the sake of being theirs forever. And ironically, that's what, increased its value initially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and now you have an art market, which has almost become the Bitcoin of the creative world <laughs> because it's this false economy that has a baseline that's completely invented. 
Yeah. And the prices are entirely internally driven. There's no, there's no meaning to any of it. Yeah. And that really freaks me out because fine art is a perfect example of a medium that was completely and utterly destroyed purely by putting a lot of money into it. It, it was almost like, mm-hmm. it was almost like an experiment in how quickly it would take pure capitalism to kill a medium. In film now, my friend, one of the producers on my movie, he's a very smart guy, and he, uh, he came from Wall Street. He was, uh, he was a hedge fund guy for a while. And he was telling me that now, for the first time, hedge funds are starting to invest in movies, which they're not, they never really did, and they're not really supposed to do because it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do because it should be a really volatile market. But mm-hmm. you can find with sort of the superhero stuff and the really big action stuff that if you just pump enough money into them initially for the marketing for this and that, you can pretty much guarantee a return. Mm. But the trick of it is you need to put the 200 to 400 million up front to get the, you know, three quarters of a billion back, which means that now you have a generation of studio heads who are all imported from like GE and, you know, like wherever who aren't who didn't come from the world of film at all. And you have investors who are all looking for capital investments in movies and not looking to create a product. Which means that now all of your money, because it takes such a titanic amount of money in the, in the short term to even create that, all of the money that would go spread out to like a whole bunch of like 20 to $40 million films now funnels into these big tentpole ones mm-hmm. and it pushes out through the sausage factory and then you get, you know, Ant-Man. Yeah. And this has never happened before. <laughs> and the, well, only, the only time I know it's happened is it happened to fine art in like the 60s. Yeah. I think that's actually really important to what I was saying earlier about like if if film is not going to peak, it's if it's if it's going to keep going, it needs to come from different perspectives. And if these smaller voices don't have the money or the platform to get out there, then they have no chance. And because like you were saying, because it's these corporate i mean it's a business now and well it's always been a business now it's like it's a hedge fund now yeah yeah like it's a um, i don't even say it's like a transaction like it's a it was a business before but now it's just like <laughs> like a purchase and those the people that are investing in this stuff aren't going to pay for some little even even though like a lot of movies that have come out like um, I know Lucy did a lot better than expected and um, I know I think like that was the one with Scarlet though right yeah and I like Pitch Perfect 2 I think did really well and I don't I don't know Pitch Perfect 2 was huge and it was the same week as Fury Road which meant that both of those box office champs that week were women's stories yeah, and they they did really well. I mean, it's not like all these great, you know, these movies are coming out under the radar and making nothing. Like they're making money, but the people investing in them, there's nobody investing in them or I mean, I don't know. Yeah, you Someone almost is, you almost have not... to go the way independent cinema used to go getting, you know, dentists to invest in your movie now to yeah. get what studios used to make. 
Yeah. Like if and, you wanted to make The Godfather now, you would have to run a Kickstarter. Right. Well, that's I actually saw um Miriam Bale had a thread going. I love her. I think I do too. I I do too. She's one of my favorite people on Twitter, but she was actually talking about that very thing because there was an African filmmaker, I for, I forget his name, but he was running a Hail, um something. Yeah. H A I L E. Can you look his name up? Yeah, we'll we should say it cuz cuz yeah. I want people to throw money on this one. Yeah, but he was doing like it was barely funded and then she was talking about some other like uh Abel Ferrara and uh Wiseman and a yeah, few Yeah, Wiseman's people. had to get a Kickstarter for Jackson Heights. But they made Hail like Jerima? G-E-R-I-M-A. That sounds right. Yeah. I have like I have really bad memory, but but I think I mean I think like yeah, he's, Ferrara I, he's made, um like, Ethiopian, I think, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. He's um, the guy who did Sankofa, which was a great movie. Yeah, and it's you know, and I don't I don't know if his Kickstarters ended or how he did on the goal, but I know a lot of those like they didn't they didn't make it. They didn't you know, they didn't make um, their goal. Like, I think Ferrara made like 4% or something of his of his goal. And so it's like, in theory, that would be a really great way to do it. But that's not that's not working, apparently. Um, and I was really surprised when she was posting about that, because that was that would have been my reaction you know, with this question of how do we get cinema out of the hands of these like bankers basically um, would be to do it guerrilla style, take to the streets. But apparently that's not, you know, a lot of times that doesn't. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is you can't raise a $40 million Kickstarter. Yeah. And you're almost better off at this point being Scorsese trying to get money when he's like 20, whatever, for uh, Mean Streets than Scorsese trying to get money for King of Comedy or even Gangs in New York at this point. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you're better off being, you know, pre-Jaws Spielberg getting money for Duel than Spielberg trying to get money for Saving Private Ryan now. Yeah. Because the the thing is, it's probably easier than ever to be a young independent filmmaker, but I think it's harder than ever to be a working you know, mid-budget filmmaker. Absolutely. I mean, just speaking from me and you, I mean, you know, theoretically, you can have a Woody Allen career of a film a year, but they're all going to be like a couple thousand dollars each if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. And you're a young filmmaker. Like, you can have that dream career that you always wanted of constantly making films, but they're all going to be very, very small films. You know, that's that's the catch. When I was talking to Roger Christensen in that interview I did with him a while ago, which you can read on the site, he's been in film since the 70s. He was um, set designer on the original Star Wars and, you know, has been making movies ever since then. He told me that the only way he can get a movie funded now at a budget level anywhere near what he wants, which is usually the, you know, like 10 to 20 million dollar range, is he has to go to Eastern Europe where there are government subsidies because they want to start mm-hmm. film industries there. Mm. And that's the only yeah. thing he can do. He goes to like Latvia and the government will kick in $10 million. Yeah. And it's, it's like a WPA thing, which a lot of countries historically have had. America, I think, is one of the only ones that never did. The closest yeah. we ever came to it was during the Second World War when we just employed like all of our great filmmakers and had them making stuff. Yeah. But um, I almost get the sense now that if Hollywood is becoming what it's becoming, then we almost need 
like a WPA for working filmmakers. You know, yeah. we need we need like a government subsidy. Yeah. And I think that actually came up in that Twitter conversation. And I know like here in Austin, like we have the Austin Film Society and we have a lot of like resources for indie people. But, you know, if you're if you don't have that, then, yeah, you can like buy a camera and put together something with your friends. But I think it's I don't know, it has to be a, a government thing or but I think if that's going to happen it has to be an organization that's going to be super open to taking chances on like non-white or female or whoever filmmakers because I think that a lot of that stuff is still kind of a a boys club and I don't know you know if you're a mid-range filmmaker i'm not sh- i don't know how easy it is to get into that you know sundance whatever world it without the connections and stuff i don't know i mean i'm not an interesting person and it's just totally a guess but <laughs> but i think that that's the problem with i mean it basically to me it feels like you know there's a bunch of um Wall Street guys and they're just hiring like their friends to do a movie that they liked when they were a kid because that's what they feel like. See, I don't but. think it's that at all. The 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 hedge fund guys and all that, they're not they're not investing based on what they like. They're investing off of, you know, spreadsheets. Yeah. It's it's yeah. calculus. Well, it's um that- which is to me arguably even worse. It's it's this sense yeah, of yeah. um the McDonald's effect where yeah. you you kind of make something that um, is just palatable enough that you'll sell yeah. large enough quantities of it in enough places that'll work. It seems almost yeah. like a saber metrics thing too. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much exactly that. And you can see it like in little ways, like with Ant-Man, if you paid attention, the um, you can go to that one website, I forget where it is, but where they catalog all the movie posters, you can see like the first wave of posters for that movie are all Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd. And then when it was tracking poorly, the second wave <laughs> are just all the different people from the Avengers movies with the little ant guy yeah. in the corner. Yeah. And yeah. like little things like that. And that's all, um, I mean, that's, you know, Minimax projections and that's, you know, people sitting on their Bloomberg terminals or whatever. Yeah. I want you to pull up that quote, John, that we were talking about pre-episode. Uh, yeah, this um, I'm kicking myself for not writing down the author of this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna find it and we'll I guess post it on the page for the thing. But um, this was in the introduction for uh, On the Iliad by Rachel uh, Bespalov, and uh, that whole book is talking about um, the style of the Iliad and sort of the 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 simultaneous um, rise and climax of epic poetry and and. This whole idea of art sort of peaking because the the epic poem, I mean, despite what people like the Aeneid would tell you, really kind of by the time anybody thought to write it down had closed as an art form for various sort of social reasons, mostly literacy. So in this introduction, he's he's coming up with this theory that, you know, why art reaches this peak and then sometimes a medium is just gone after that as a cultural touchstone. Uh, So here's a quote. The great style comes into being when the crust of the closed system cracks open to give birth to a new system. At this moment, when there is still vitality and security in the old system and its forms, 
still certitude in the myth, the new system, vitalized by hope and striving towards openness, creates its own new form, the great style. This is to be seen in Michelangelo, in the Greek cycle of Achilles, or in the sculptures of Olympia. The great style is security and revolution in one, and lasts only as long as the revolutionary tendency is aflamed, but is doomed to harden once more into a system closed as was its predecessor. And I think it really is accurate. You look at sort of the great mm-hmm. period for literature, and it was, um, you know, the middle of the, the 19th century. And it was in Russia, it was when the uh, czarist era was just creaking to a close. And it was before, you know, it was during the peasant uprisings before the Soviets took over. And you look at um, narrative paintings, and it was it was right around when the futurists and the cubists were coming in and they had all their new plans for it. But right before it was drowned in money and you have, you know, these sort of vestiges of the end of of an old order and the beginning of a new order. Is this the period we're in or have passed or are about to pass for cinema? I feel like there are a lot of, there's enough good stuff still kind of filtering through that it's not quite, that there's still hope. <laughs> well, but I mean, there's still good novels being written every yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, there's still good paintings being painted every year. But I, think, I mean, in terms of sort of cultural currency and, and cultural weight. Yeah. I've been thinking about, too, like what we were talking about earlier, like with audience tracking and stuff. Like, I don't, I don't know if film is just, if it's giving people what they want or if it's telling people what they want or if people are actually interested in what's coming out or what. But, I mean, I think it's not just that, I don't know. I mean, I would like to think that there's enough people that still care to, like, turn it around. But I don't don't know. I mean, I don't know if there are going to be any more huge movies that come out and make a a ton of money and then are still looked at as like great classics 20 years from now, like assuming we're still alive and all watching movies and everything. What about, Um, what about not huge movies that come out and make a ton of money and are regarded as classics? What about just, you know, a year of like really good, solid, honest feeling dramas? Do you you see that in the cards? Because I that idea to me is more remote than the idea of like huge movies making a ton of money and everybody loving them. Yeah, yeah. And no, I I think so, too. And I even movies that come out now that I really love or, or stuff that maybe, you know, wasn't that well received when it came out, but that might be reevaluated later. I don't know. But stuff that comes out that I really like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's going to stand the test of time. Like something made in 1950 still holds up now. If that makes sense. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think Um, so. I think like Calvary will, you know, I think you could put Calvary in any era and it would be like a great, great film. But the thing is Calvary was probably over a year ago now and it's the first, you know, like, quiet great drama i could think of yeah short term 12 maybe but you know like yeah well you hit this point where you're you're like scrambling through the years to try to find one right maybe doubt or something like that yeah Yeah. Um, and that was probably eight years ago by now or something and they they feel a little less impactful but i feel like that that sort of filmmaking is 
the barometer for the health of, you know, movies. Yeah. No, that's a, yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, there's been some good dramas that have come out that are super like low budget, you know, I mean, like short term 12 is like real tiny movie, right? Like, yeah, you know, I thought I think good stuff's coming out. But, you know, I mean, something coming out like doubt, like in a big a, a wider release with a bigger budget that I, I don't know. Um, I don't know when the last time a good like drama or something has come out like that. I really liked uh, Some Velvet Morning, which was the Neil Labute one that came out with Stanley Tucci in it. Yeah. I think a year or two ago. And that was like very, very micro budget. And I was just them shooting in a house for like a weekend. But that's what worries me. That it's all, you have to find micro budget. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And it's almost like, oh, you know what though? Shit. I just thought of one. Selma. Selma. Oh, yeah. yeah. Selma, which was a stone cold masterpiece, you know, more money than you could kickstart. But not, you know, tentpole money. Shit, you know what though? They scooped her right up and put her into a superhero movie. That director <laughs> is is she doing it though? Like, because I know she was gonna do it, but then she wasn't. I don't know if oh, she's. Oh, I didn't hear. I, didn't I, hear have, I don't know. But they but, really wanted her for it. Yeah. Well, and that just to me, kind of, I wonder about that decision if it's like kind of trying to appease <laughs> some. People's yeah. uh, calls for having a woman director for because wasn't it going to be what was it that she was going <coughs> to Black Panther Black Panther yeah which you get it you know it, you need you need a black hand behind the camera for that and she's a tremendous yeah. filmmaker and we need more women filmmakers yeah but like then at the same time it's such a shame that you know you make a movie like Selma which is such a rare fucking masterpiece mm-hmm. and like your reward is some giant piece of adolescent you yeah. know fun that you know any hack could direct that you're not even really going to be directing it yeah. the head of marvel is going to be directing it. Right, you're just yeah. going to be showing up and you know keeping an eye on the catering table. yeah there, <laughs> yeah there's so well, many hands in them at that yeah point. yeah yeah i mean i don't think and even if she does somehow manage to um, <laughs> go by their back and make something really good, it's still just like, okay, it's a good superhero movie. Like, yeah, great. <laughs> and ultimately, there was such a push among so many people to make that not a pejorative anymore. And like for a while there, they really hit that point. And then everything got so super saturated that to me, that's a pejorative again. You yeah, know, just another good superhero. There is like a period of a couple of years there where I was like, yeah, they they could be just as good as any other movies. And now, no. <laughs> you know, I've like totally crossed over that water again. And yeah. I'm like, no, I don't want to fucking deal with it anymore. Yeah. Right. You know what it makes me think, though? The one bit of optimism I have about this whole sort of landscape is, do you remember years ago when every street got so crowded with fast food places and so crowded with just terrible, slimy garbage food everywhere? <laughs> that everybody like seemingly all at once we all just kind of snapped and everybody made like a conscious effort to eat better and it was people that you yeah. would never even think started yeah. to like worry about that absolutely you know and now you have this sort of we've hit this kind of like comfortable middle ground where now you know you can go out and find like you know vegan and vegetarian food and healthy food in just about any town in america yeah 
And it seems like it was just this spontaneous moment where, you know, there was just a tipping point. Everyone was like, no, we, we, we don't want this anymore. And it's self-corrected. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. I was a kid, I mean, I was, I was raised vegan and I remember when the idea of a commercial on TV for soy milk or almond yeah. milk or whatever, that was like, no, that's never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. That would never yeah. occur in my lifetime. Yeah. And like even my parents, they remember like the only place you could get soy milk and tofu was like Korean delis and yeah. whatnot. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't go into a place like Whole Foods. Well, there wasn't really a Whole Foods, but a big place like that and expect to get something like that. Yeah. yeah. And you hope film will be resilient enough to have a, a life cycle like that where it bounces back and stays a major cultural touchstone. But yeah. the yeah, novel didn't. The poem didn't. Yeah. The, the, the jazz album didn't. You know, well, it's, you could I sit mean, here and list all these things that people thought were yeah. never going away that went away. Yeah. Well, it just it totally I don't know. I mean, somebody with the money uh, has to fix it. <laughs> and, you know, if nobody with the money to fund this stuff wants to do it differently, then it's not going to be done differently. And I don't know. I think uh, I think the uh, the thing too is like people will go out and watch you know some big superhero movie and that's their event and then what satisfies their need for something a little more nutritious is they'll go home and then they'll watch like like a whole season of Breaking Bad yeah. or The Wire mm -hmm. or something so yeah. that's what's keeping them yeah. not feeling a lack the, of something even, deeper even TV now in the past I would say three maybe four years is well into this very calcified, very formulaic, probably as much as the superhero movies, very rigid formula yeah. with, uh, you know, almost Xerox scripts from these prestige shows to these prestige shows. And the brilliance yeah. of Breaking Bad, which I think is as good as probably any piece of media to come out of the century and maybe even out of the last one too. The brilliance of it was that it felt so specific you know, like Walter White was so, even the way he moved around and talked it was so specific. All the analogies he used where you absolutely could believe like a chemistry teacher from from the Southwest would say them. And, you know, there was this very like lived in almost like like the 70s New Hollywood feel of just like this is a, a guy who exists. And you get yeah. that with Mad Men, too. And now you look at TV and you can't find any show that has that. I really like uh, Mr. Robot. Have you checked that one out yet? Oh, it looked terrible. Isn't it again? Oh, it's so good. I resent any of these shows that are it. on networks and are also mad at capitalism. It is. It, <laughs> it, see, that's a great point that you bring up because it's a great show because the main character has all these surface elements of like, oh, he's like a kid in a hoodie and he's awesome and he knows how to do shit and everything. But like it, it doesn't shy from like making fun of him for that and pointing out like the holes in his worldview, like consistently. But that, that's that like lightly satirical Jurassic World thing I'm talking no, about. No, I think no. that's such Way a cop different. out. Way different. Like I, I watched the first two episodes. I'm fucking hooked. I think it's the best thing on TV right now. <laughs> it is really good. The, the, even the cinematography, the framing, I haven't seen framing like that on any show. They're doing real out there shit. Dude. Well, you still haven't seen Breaking Bad. I know. <laughs> Which is know. like, you still haven't seen Mad Men, have you? No, I haven't watched Mad Men. I, I tried the first episode. Couldn't do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to it eventually. Mad Men, the, the first season's a little rocky because they're still really pushing the this is a 60s novelty thing. Right. And then once they sort of get over that bump, I mean, Mad Men is, 
it's the closest to Cirque we've had since Cirque died. Which is, you know, the best thing you could say as far as getting me to want to watch it, you know, because I adore Cirque. I almost have to wait for myself to be ready for a lot of these shows. Like, Mm-hmm. When they do, so, they feel like a major, yeah. like they feel like starting a relationship. Yeah. I mean, like when I <laughs> look, when I read all the Game of Thrones books, that became my life for a period of time. When I watched yeah. The Wire, it took me like three years to finally watch life. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Because it was like one of those things. They're like, oh, God damn it. This is going to be my day. <laughs> and now. you still haven't read the books yet. And that becomes its own thing because yeah. you start reading the books and it's, oh, wait, this is the show. But if it had a whole bunch of episodes and was able to, you know, give everybody a real arc and this, that, and the other. And it just becomes a thing that consumes you. But this shit is absolutely murdering movies now. And it's, it, I think it's yeah. because, and now you get people who act like you can't, people will tell you, you need the length of a TV show to develop a character properly. And it's yeah, just not totally true. Not true. Yeah. And the reason yeah. they think it is because it's probably been 10 years since we've had a major success on screen where somebody yes. did that. Yeah, Glenn yeah. Gary going Ross is like, what, 100 minutes long? Yeah. That's like two yeah. episodes long, and all those characters are fucking perfect. You, yeah. you didn't need yeah. a season of television. Casablanca is an hour 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even like a really short movie, like a Kurzmaki movie, like a Match Factory Girl, Yeah, you get everybody in it in 70 minutes. You don't yeah. need that yeah. to be a series called The Match Factory Girl. It's, it's this cohesive whole yeah. that's like, barely longer than a tv show yeah and like yeah. i don't feel like i know anybody on almost any show except the great ones more than i knew marge gunderson and fargo mm. you know yeah you don't need yeah. that much time to really get yeah. someone and it's yeah. almost like a it's a it's a thing of like you know bad writing when you're when you're stuck on something you write and you write and you write and you write and you can't get out of like the first act almost yeah. like but that's encouraged with television in yeah. a way that it's not encouraged in yeah. anything else. It you wouldn't say that to like a screenwriter, like, oh, just keep writing, keep writing, you'll get there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just stretch it out. But that's like the that seems to be the perspective when you're writing television is just you'll get there eventually. Yeah, there's this genius across the board in superhero movies and in TV shows of just promising people they're gonna get something. <laughs> and everybody knows, I think. Like deep down, everybody knows you're not, you can't ask a show to give you the meaning of life. No. And then yeah. you have people who were mad at Lost because the ending didn't <laughs> tell you, the, literally didn't tell you the meaning of life. And you're like, well, what? The, it was network TV. What'd you say? It wasn't even yeah. HBO. Yeah. I mean, but that was like that. Whole- Maybe HBO would give you the meaning of life. But the whole thing with Lost was that fans were consistently calling it a show where we were going to have things revealed. And the theme of the show from the beginning has been little to no interest with revealing things ever. (laughs) And that became the overarching theme of the show that like that was what tied everything together that you don't get the answers and everybody is full of shit. Nobody knows what they're talking about. But everybody looks at it as a show that failed towards some other premise that yeah, had nothing to do with the weird show whatsoever. Wikipedia way of watching things <laughs> that I think has done its its part in eroding what people expect from things. Like when Battlestar was on the air, which I still think is maybe, you know, top 10, top 20 shows all time. The first line of Battlestar Galactica was God has a plan for you. And then at the end, <laughs> when like it turned out that there was a God in the show and like some of the stuff that happened was angels and stuff, people were hard pissed <laughs> and we're like this is such a betrayal and i'm like it was the first thing they tell you literally before the opening credits 
But like people are sitting there and all they want is like technical guides. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh, there's so many. I thought of multiple things like, well, first of all, with the TV, what you were talking about, like the writing, like, so I don't, I'm not big on TV. Like most of the huge series, like I haven't watched because, okay, like you said, it's like getting into a relationship. Like I'm not going to make a commitment to 150 hours of a show. Like I, I can't do it and it's emotionally yeah. taxing too yeah. just like a and relationship it's like you're yeah. gonna date this guy and he's gonna be kind of awesome but he's gonna treat you shit for like a couple weeks but just get past it because if you get past that it's gonna be great and you're gonna yeah. date him for like six months and then you won't see him again but you'll like date him again when you like get nostalgic for him like a couple years <laughs> later sydney was it was it you that i was telling once that i was in like a near plane crash and it was less stressful than certain episodes of battlestar galactica were? <laughs> yes. i was dead serious about that like there's yeah. just something about one of those shows breaking bad battlestar to a lesser extent mad yeah. men and lost will just you know well and it's, I, it's like having a loaded gun in the house those shows yes <laughs> It is. Well, and I'll watch like on Twitter, I'll see people talking about it and they're like fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that and, I always hear too is like, oh, you know, you just have to get past this thing and it gets better. Like if I say yeah. I don't like something, they're like, yeah, you're not supposed to like it yet. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. That yeah. I think is bullshit. But you know, the, the idea of a show that upsets you, I think is great. I mean, art should upset you a lot. Sure. Mo yeah. The trouble is movies don't, up there's no movies that really upset people anymore. And there yeah. used to be all the, I mean, look at the ending of any 70s movie. They were <laughs> oh, usually God, upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Even the and 40s stuff, the film noirs, they were always upsetting. Yeah. And I totally, I 100% agree with that. And I like that in movies. I don't want it in like a five seasons of television that I'm expected to keep up with. And then talk about it later people are like oh well you know season two is just okay but you know three is really good before and i'm like i'm not i don't have time three is always really good through. no matter what the show is three is almost always the best season well, well lost <laughs> yeah. half of three on lost is fantastic and then the other half was awful actually oh yeah yeah and that's the thing is like i can't it's not it's just not worth it to but like sit. this is that weird homework aspect that I think post Sopranos yes. TV has had yeah. <laughs> like yeah. now you have to watch the whole thing which is yeah. fine for some shows I mean you know I really wouldn't trade I can't stress this enough I really wouldn't trade Breaking Bad for anything but also there's something wonderful to be said for like Alfred Hitchcock Presents or like The Twilight Zone where you yeah. check in you get a full story and then you know you're done yeah. for the honeymooners well, yeah and it's fun. And I'm sure when it was on TV, it's like, oh, you know, we're going to sit down, you know, as a family or whatever. And it's something that comes on. And also there's not the obligation to like talk about it. Yeah. I'm sure people talked about the Twilight Zone, you know, at work the next day uh, or whatever. But there's not this. It does feel like homework now. And we've, if you we've made to, shows and, and movies, I think, too central. Yeah. Sorry, which, I cut you off, but I didn't want to forget to say that no, because I've been meaning no. to say that for an hour and keep forgetting. <laughs> well, no, you're right. And I think, you know, it ties back to what, you know, with like the Marvel movies and stuff. It's like, I don't think people even want 
the movies. They want the trailers. Yeah. And they want to talk about the trailers. They want the hype. Yeah. Oh, they get so nobody excited about the fucking trailers. About, yeah. Like <laughs> nobody cares about the movie. Like once it comes out, before it even comes out, it's like it's done. Yeah. You know, like the new Avengers comes out next week, but they've dropped a trailer for the next one. So just get this, get the movie out of the way so that we can go on, proceed with the next. Yeah. Or it's like stuff to talk about. It's it's like the chappy thing where the trailer came out and the response wasn't that looks bad. It was before the movie came out, this is the worst movie of the year. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean you can't you can't evaluate things like that. It's it's yeah. not worth anything. Yeah, and it's it's putting so much trust into a trailer to be accurate, which trailers are rarely accurate. Except in yeah. like you could say you can make the case that like with superhero movies, you know what you're getting by the trailer and they're pretty much the same to it but trailers historically they can really like you can cut like a dramatic trailer a funnier trailer it's literally literally looking at the cover of a book and saying this is the worst book written this year yeah yeah they looked at the cover of chappie and they were like i don't need to read that (laughs) no they weren't i don't need to read that they were this is the worst (laughs) book written this year i want to be very clear there's a huge difference between those two statements i don't want to read that is fine that's a normal human response to a thing (laughs) yeah but the this is empirically bad even though i haven't seen it yeah like that article that's working around now where um somebody was yelling at Gone with the Wind, who hadn't actually seen it. And then someone was <laughs> rabidly defending Gone with the Wind, who hadn't actually seen it. And just like, shut the fuck up or see the movie. You, you have two choices. Yeah. Neither of them affect anybody that much. Nobody's sitting there clamoring for your take on a movie from 1939 that's already had <laughs> three shelves worth of books in its defense and four against it. Just shut yeah. up. Yeah. But there's, I guess everybody's dying to be, you know, Pauline Kale and everybody's just a dweeb now <laughs> yeah I, I don't know i mean i don't know where that i don't know if everyone is just so desperately lonely and grown up <laughs> not learning that the difference between good attention and bad attention <laughs> i don't know but yeah it's like i mean for me like i i put out my stupid opinions all the time like on twitter and i don't really but i don't put them out there as like expecting exact people to listen to them. Like I know it's public. It's on the internet. People follow me. They're going to read it, but I don't have like a blog where I get paid and I don't that. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how someone could sleep at night (laughs) when someone pays them to write an article about, like you said, a a movie from the thirties that they haven't seen, but I don't know. It's just this. I, I mean, it, it's loneliness and also, you know, a world run on the amount of clicks that you can get. And sometimes I think that these places hire people with really stupid opinions that they know are terrible, but that they know are going to get really, really uh, people really riled up. Oh, that's the Armin, that's the Armin White problem, who he gets yeah. more ridiculous every year. Because this yeah. ridiculous stuff gets the hits. And he's he's brilliant. He's yeah, when he's really on. Guy. Yeah, he's a wonderful writer sometimes. But yeah. yeah. No, and I but at least with him, it's like he has I, I love reading his stuff. And Me I think too, that yeah. I do about half the time. And then the other half of the time I'm like, well, this is pretty transparently just nothing. 
Yeah, yeah. But it, it, he's at least has like some kind of like a history of occasionally being valuable, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. But I he don't know. I mean, sometimes I read articles that I just feel like the people who published it know that it's really bad, but they didn't tell the person that wrote it that. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, it, it, it all feels like almost like the Banksy Mr. Brainwash kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's just a, a field of Mr. Brainwashes in the in the blogosphere now. So the question yeah. is, is the apparatus of filmmaking broken because the apparatus of film watching is broken or is the apparatus of film watching broken because the apparatus of filmmaking is broken? <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, did we poison Jurassic Park or yeah. did Jurassic Park poison us? I mean, I've, I think about that, too. And I especially when I see stuff like, OK, like when Jurassic World came out, I saw a lot of people, a, a good amount. I, I think a healthy amount of people saw that it sucked. But there was also a good amount of people saying, oh, well, it's just a stupid dinosaur movie, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just turn your brain off and have fun. But then something like transformers will come out and the same people are like oh my god this yeah. is the death of intelligence <laughs> that's absolutely you know? true yeah. my favorite and was I the people bugging hard about transformers 3 and then repping the fuck out of pacific rim yeah <laughs> like yeah. they weren't the same exact movie except transformers 3 was better shot yeah <laughs> And I, I don't, oh my God, sometimes I, I'll post, like when I posted my Jurassic World review and I, I really briefly put something in there about like people who hate Michael Bay, but like this movie, I'll fight you. Like sometimes <laughs> I wish that someone would say something to me just so that I can say, <laughs> like argue with them about it. But I, you're cruising for a fight. Know. Yeah. I'm, I mean, not yeah. really, but. Um, Maybe that could be our next episode. We can invite that. viewers to call in and fight Sydney. <laughs> oh God, no! I'm I'm a nice person. I don't like fighting with people, but <laughs> I I I really don't. I truly do not understand that. And it seems to be this really weird double standard. And I don't even know that there's any like consistency to it. But sometimes a superhero movie will come out, and people will say, "Oh, it's just a superhero movie. It doesn't matter." And then something else will come out and it's it's ruining people because it's stupid. Like some stupid stuff is OK, but other isn't. Yeah. And I don't know as far as like people. It's kind of like what I said earlier about like, is this stuff coming out because people actually want it or are we just seeing it because it's out? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with advertising and you know, people are affected by advertising. And if a trailer makes you want to see something, then they'll want to go see it. But I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who's ruining it. <laughs> We're all collectively ruining it. If they don't matter, if, you know, Avengers 2 or whatever doesn't matter, and you shouldn't worry about it when it's occupying your screens, then it shouldn't, then we shouldn't spend... <laughs> as much money on it as it took to build the Bank of America Tower. Yeah. Yeah, like why I mean, it it's exist? such a colossal, almost incomprehensible amount of money yeah. to yeah. make one of these movies. I did the math once and you could make, I think the, the figure I, I, came, I came to was you could make 11,000 paranormal activities for the cost of one <laughs> Lone Ranger. 
The amount of money you could fund an entire independent film revolution on one of those yeah. movies that yes. failed. Yeah, and it's. Yeah. I think it's very hard for people to really sit down yeah. and figure out how much. $300 million really is. You could probably make spend on a movie. all the Woody Allen movies of the last like 20 years or so. I would say ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially probably ever. Yeah. Especially with the technology now and, you know, things being a little cheaper. And Yeah. So yeah. if these are things that don't matter, we shouldn't be putting like the, I mean, you could start a the nation with the, with the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can make, yeah. you can make 30 movies easily all of them good pretty sizable ones too. Yeah. yeah you can make 30 parallax views yeah you're not you can make 30 yeah. godfather twos yeah and some yeah. of them are going to be great and some of them are going to be okay and some of them are going to be bad but yeah. you have more chances within that yeah. spending of all that money on many many things than you do when you lump it all into lone ranger yeah, yeah. when well, people i don't know it's like they're going to see it but i don't know I mean, people like them and they, I don't know, buy them on Blu-ray and watch them again. But it's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the average reaction is like, oh, that was pretty fun. <laughs> you know, like, why? Like, what is the yeah. point? I think they're just, it, it's a TV thing. It's that they get, they get yeah. something deeper on the TV and then they go out and they watch junk. It's like they, they they're yeah. eating like these culinary delights at home. And then, you know, when they go out, they're going to go out and, and eat at McDonald's or something. Yeah. But the other thing of it is they, they don't have any impact when you keep making them either. You know, yeah. I remember um, when that first Spider-Man came out and like him swinging across the city was fucking cool because mm. nobody yeah. had done that yet, you know? Yeah. And like District 9, which actually didn't cost much at all to make, by the way. Yeah. District 9, when he, when he, reaches up and grabs that rocket when it's flying out of the sky like mm. that blew yeah. me away and there's these small moments that are really amazing that you you kind of do need a certain budget level to hit but when you yeah. keep showing you know a blue tinted panorama of a guy flying <laughs> you know it's it's the same in everything yeah. or you show those you know like wispy blue bolts coming out of fucking you know like magic shit you know it all looks the same and you see it in everything and it, it you yeah. can't you can almost see the same maya and after effects plugins being used on every movie <laughs> yeah yeah and the same origin story <laughs> yeah i mean even it's setting all- even setting aside the the storytelling aspect just on purely visual terms sure, yeah. yeah when you hit that level of monotony which i think might be the appeal of some of the michael bay stuff for me you know say what you will about the fascist insanity of them there were parts of transformers 3 that really did not look like parts of any other movies i had seen yeah, yeah and, that, and that piece you did about the futurism of michael <laughs> yeah. bay that that's gone i mean i, I don't want to use the term viral not just because it's a horrible word and i hate <laughs> using it but you know amongst people interested in film that's that really hate viral yeah <laughs> because if you say michael bay and you say anything remotely positive which i really didn't a lot in that i say i mean i compared him to lenny reifenstahl like three different times in that thing <laughs> i have a lot of good things to say about michael bay's art but i don't exactly trust him as you know a storyteller yeah credit where credit's yeah. due yeah, and i didn't hide yeah. that but if you say the remotest bit of praise it's like this fucking nerd under 40 thing where they have a <laughs> conniption yeah. fit where they act like you're burning their house down yeah, yeah. it's heresy i don't know who they're well, taking orders from all of them but it seriously <laughs> feels like there's a central command yeah well and i think was the me, blowfield of the nerds <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i mean 
Sometimes I wonder, like, because I'm always all about, like, I don't know, Michael Bay and whatever other big, crazy, uh, deplorable <laughs> things like that. And with me, sometimes I feel like it's almost seen as, like, it's like a quirk. <laughs> it's like, oh, Sydney. Yeah, so, it's a guilty it's so pleasure. I get that, too, she, from people. <laughs> yeah, but, and I really, I don't know. And I am. Okay, when I posted my stupid Bad Boys 2 review, which is like, you know, I don't know, the only thing that a lot of people, I don't know, whatever. But, and I hate bringing it up because like I like it, but it, you know, is like my my claim to fame. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't know if that's the thing that I would pick to represent myself, I guess. Anyway, but I posted it and I was really like in awe of that movie and I thought it was amazing. But a lot of people kind of thought that I was maybe making fun of it or saying that it was bad or I don't know. Like I really I like I respect those movies like they're stupid yeah. and they're awful. I mean, as much as I talk about like feminism and social stuff like that, like. I mean, Michael Bay is a horrible person. I would never want (laughs) to hang out with him or anything. But I really, I mean, there's value in the stuff that he does. He's a magnificent filmmaker. I mean, the the Transformers, the fourth one, man, I don't know. I love that. And then Pain and Gain, like, that's still one of the, I mean, that's one of the best movies I've seen in the last few years. But it's kind of like, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like that so bad it's good sort of i don't know but yeah i definitely think it's either you bring it up and either people are like you're an idiot or it's like oh <laughs> sydney just being her yeah she's <laughs> trying to be a contrarian it's because there's yeah. this weird like i'm telling you there's a central command and there's this weird like <laughs> there's a list of things that it's okay to like and there's a list of things that it's not okay yep, to like and absolutely. you're almost better off talking about movies with people who don't care a shit about movies than right. with people yeah. who kind of do. Yep. Because the yeah. people who kind of do will take their checklist and be like, okay, Shawshank, good. <laughs> Michael Bay, bad. Yeah. Dark Pulp Knight, Fiction, amazing. Good. Yeah, Dark Knight, yeah. amazing. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, amazing. Death Proof, bad. And, you know, they'll go back and they'll cross-reference and it'll just be yeah. based on the smoke and mirrors of consensus that, like, 45, 45-year-olds made up. Yeah. And it's very yeah. absolutely weird onto and, something. Because... and. Uh, it's always like the same movie. It's always like Fear and Loathing. Like yeah. for some reason, that's this movie that everybody adores. It, it became this like this standard and it didn't always. It, yeah. And Big yeah. Lebowski. Or yeah, Lebowski or that stupid Talking Heads movie that Jonathan Demi did. Stop, Stop making, making sense. sense. Can't oh, deal with it. Can't deal with it. Can't deal with it. You're on your own with but that like, one. You know, it was <laughs> something that even people who will not listen to Talking Heads or like New Wave at all. They all just are like, all right, that's that's the one. And it's just bullshit. Yeah. It's just somebody else told them about it. And then, well, and you that, know, like, yeah. I like, I don't like all the Michael Bay stuff, but the Michael Bay stuff I like, I like pretty much for the same reason I like Eisenstein movies, you know? I'm getting the same sort of visual stuff out of Ivan the Terrible as I am out of Bad Boys 2. Mm. And in yeah. both cases, I'm not t- taking the moral message particularly seriously. Yeah. You know, and it... Somehow it's okay then, but it's not okay now. And there's this weird, you know, there's this weird posturing to it all. Yeah, I think there's yeah. a there's a nerd obsession with uh, 
you know, coolness that's a uh, coolness that's very specific to that group. Coolness for them is being employees. They're all <laughs> dying to be employees. I mean, they, they, if you really look at it, what's happening is they're 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 making these cultural and and sort of social decisions based on what's good for the company. Yeah. And the, yeah. these movies that really the only the only good they're doing anybody like the constant rebooting of the Spider-Man and everybody knows it's because they're clinging to the license like a fucking life raft. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. only person that's helping is, you know, Sony and Sony's investors. Yeah. But you get yeah. these people, it, you know, they're like armchair generals, you know, <laughs> they're, they're pretending yeah. like they're the investors. It reminds me it's, of what's the, that uh, a moral technique line where we pretend like we're getting the weapons contracts in Afghanistan. It's the same <laughs> thing. People pretend like they're going to get the kickbacks if Spider-Man 52 does well. Yeah. It just reminded yeah. me of the, the cliche of like really, really impoverished Southern people that vote, you know, Republican and, yeah. and just mm -hmm. block yeah. a vote Republican. And it's like, well, yeah, movies have turned us all into into rural Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. We're going to be back quick with a voicemail from one of our listeners. So see you soon. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voicemail box? Just call the following phone number. 718395979. Nine seven one one, and leave a question for the mailbag or a comment about the show, along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. Okay, currently I've been working Spy. That's a Melissa McCarthy one. It's got some funny parts. I'm kind of surprised because I didn't really like the trailer. Like, it has some parts that legitimately had me coming out of the theater laughing and going up to my coworkers and quoting it and, you know, seeing if they remember the line too. I don't know if I'd seek it out as a full movie. Maybe, maybe not. However, I'll give it this much. I had no interest in Tammy when I worked it. And I had no interest in The Heat when I worked it. Now, when I worked St. Vincent, that movie looked awesome. I just didn't get a chance to see the whole thing. But she had a smaller role in that, and she did a good job. Now, way above all of that is Gilmore Girls, which isn't a movie. But as Cody has uh, actually said before, Gilmore Girls, in that her role is so good that it makes all of her movies look bad. Because she's so real as a character in that, that in the movies she looks fake. So I would just say, in the Melissa McCarthy hierarchy, you have St. Vincent, then Spy, and then don't even watch the other two. And then way, way, way worlds above that is Gilmore Girls. Thanks, Chloe. And now back to the show. And we're back. All right. Here's a voicemail that we got. And uh, check it out. Hello, this is Jane. Uh, full disclosure, I am related to Jenna, but I love your podcast. You guys do a bang up job. Always very exciting. I'm um, speaking from someone who was uh, engaged in the film business for many years. And, um, yeah, Mad Max doesn't do it for me because I can't stand Mel Gibson, but uh, be interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Anyway, continue doing what you're doing. You're great. And uh, that's all I have to say. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Jane. I still haven't seen Fury Road yet. I tried to see it. Did I tell you that story, John? No. <laughs> this is a little bit of a doozy. I'll, I'll do a quick version of it. I, I absolutely went to the theater 
tried to see this movie, okay? I paid my money, was with a friend, we sat down, perfect eyeline. I was like, I'm raring to go, I'm finally gonna see Fury Road. Move over to the seat next to us because the people like get up and leave. Even better eyeline in the theater. We're even closer in the middle. We're raring to go. We're gonna watch this movie. Start smelling like a little bit of like cigarette smoke, like somebody has like a, you know, a coat that like smells like cigarettes. Realize, oh, that's why those people left. You know, they went and got seats that weren't next to that person. It's all right. We move back to the left. Still a great eye line. We're raring to go. Can't wait. Finally going to do this. All right. So you sit through like all the previews, obviously, which, by the way, there's a preview for a movie called The Gift, which you need to check out. It's it's remember when you got in trouble for calling that kid like Colton Burpo or something? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> There's a character in the film. It's it's supposed to be like a suspense thriller with uh, Jason Bateman as the lead. It's like his dramatic thing. And it, it's written, directed, and acted by uh, this guy. I forget his name now. But the, the main character's name is Gordo. And no. they say Gordo like seven or eight times in the trailer. <laughs> and it's God. that Gordo's like this... Uh, this childhood friend of his, like they move back to town, they get a house and then, oh no, it's like, you know, Gordo and this, that and the other. And Gordo's like leaving them presents on their doorstep and Gordo won't go away. And they have to like break up with Gordo as a friend. And like he exacts revenge. It's, it's bad shit insane. I can't fucking wait to see this movie. It's going to be like a cult (laughs) hit. Yo, anytime anybody has a childhood friend in a movie or a TV show, their name is always like the wackest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> it's always Go- Gordo or Scooter yeah. or like something that no kid would ever, ever have as a nickname. Yeah. You're yeah. going gonna to adore this trailer. Anyway, movie starts right when the movie starts. Start smelling intense cigarette smoke. Somebody is smoking a cigarette in the actual theater. Oh my God. Not even like a half weed, half cigarette thing. No, straight up cigarette, 100%. And, you know, because of like the, the air in those theaters, like you light something up, it's going everywhere immediately. You know, it just gets dispersed like into everybody's nostrils, where, wherever you're sitting. People leave the theater. They're going to tell security guards. The movie's playing. I'm trying to focus on it. I'm also trying to focus on this interesting movie that's taking place before me. You know, this movie of like this mystery of like what the fuck is going on and do I need to get the fuck out of here? Like, is this going to become a thing? Security guards come in. They're looking around with flashlights. They leave. More security guards come in. More in numbers as well. Looking around. They leave. Even more security guards come in. They finally find the guy. It's this, like, one of those guys where, like, it's just all fat in the middle. And then they have, like, the T-Rex arms. And he had, he was this black dude with who had, like, this huge white T-shirt that, like, goes down to the knees. And it's just, like, all middle. And it's just all cartoon, like, tiny arms. And he's yelling at the security guards. He's like, I paid my ticket. You know, like, the girl, she saw me. Like, I don't have my ticket on me now. But this, that, and the other. He was the guy who was smoking. And they are trying to get him to leave. Clearly, this has happened to this guy before because he knows that they can't physically remove him from the theater. So now he's like lording over the theater. He's walking from the the right side of the back row to the left side of the back row. They're following him, trying to talk to him, trying to get him out of the theater. He's, you know, he's talking back. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm watching my movie. This, that, and the other. Walks, you know, down the aisle to the front. Now he's doing that with the front row where he's just walking from left to right. And they're following him like the Keystone Cops. (laughs) You know, he 
then stops like at the, you know, the entrance slash exit of the theater with all the security guards and they're arguing there. So even if you wanted to leave at that point, you can't really get past them. I was kind of timing it because, you know, I'm trying to watch a movie. It's one of those movies where if you're not glued to it right when you start watching it, you look away for a second. You're like, wait, why are they going there? What's going on? What's this? Yeah, it's it's breakneck. And uh, so I was completely out of the movie at that point. And there was this great like comedic beat almost where they were clearly waiting for the cops to arrive to physically take him out because he wasn't going to go with them. It was kind of like the stalemate where the security guards and this guy were all just like looking up at the screen watching the movie. It was just like a straight expression, you know, just just following the film, just trying to follow what they could of it. And then going back to just arguing and screaming at each other. (laughs) But like there was a good there was a good like minute or two where they were just watching the movie. And then they got irritated enough to start arguing again. And then he would leave them and go back to his seat. And one of them would have to like roll their eyes and go follow him because they just want somebody near him because they don't know what the fuck he's going to do. So when he finally left, you know, the entrance slash exit, me and my friend were like, all right, let's just get out of here and get our money back and see it some other time. So as we're passing that, one of the security guards is like, totally understand, you know, just go right to customer service. It's on the right they'll give you a refund and they'll give you free tickets. You know, really sorry about this. Totally sweet dude. Go over there. Nicest customer service I've ever experienced in my life. It, they didn't run you through the thing of like, all right, well, what theater were you in? What yeah. happened? Like where they pretend they like pretend they're ignorant to everything that's taking place, even though mm-hmm. clearly everybody in the building knows, knows what's going on at that point. Um, you know, they were just like, all right, you know, we'll refund your credit card. And then here's two free passes you know, just come back whenever you want. And it's like passes that like expire in like 2016 in like August. So it's like you can use them whenever. But yeah, tried to see Fury Road. Could not see it. That's like trying to see a movie in the world of Fury Road. Yeah. I feel like that's what it's like going to the movies in (laughs) Mad Max. Absolutely, yeah. That guy is king of the wasteland. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, one of those guys that's just so dumb you know, like it just like, why, what are you doing? Why are you doing like lighting a cigarette in a theater, like getting so arrogant? Like clearly he was one of those guys who like saw a couple movies that day or something. And like, you know, if you do that and you're kind of like, you know, incognito about it, you're not hurting anybody. Like it's, it's all right. You know, they kind of, they know people are going to do that here and there and it's not a huge (laughs) problem, but lighting up a fucking cigarette, getting that arrogant (laughs) that you're just gonna, you're just gonna test it. You're just gonna, throw that dice that's not going to come up in your favor. You know? Did you ever see the picture of the guy who snuck a uh, roast turkey and a pumpkin pie into the movie theater? <laughs> oh my God, my no. God. That's like my favorite thing I've ever, that's fantastic. ever seen in my life. That's a good one. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll see it eventually. My impression from the first 15 minutes, I hated the sped up motion stuff. It seems like, you know, British and Australian people, they have this tolerance for sped up stuff that we don't because I see that in like action movies. It's only randomly. in the sort of like clipped dreamy stuff. Yeah, that's what it's I, not. That's it, what I heard. And it doesn't I'm really, run during the action parts. I'm so glad. That's sort of like a hallucination. Well, it's not a hallucination, but it's right. You know, one of those head injury. Type I'm really things. glad to hear that. And I heard that from a couple other people that say not only is the first 15 minutes pretty dissimilar to the rest of the film, but the fast motion stuff isn't really there and the rest of it. Um, So I, you know, I will see eventually uh, my first impression was aesthetically. It's not entirely up my alley. Technically 
fascinating. You know, aesthetically, it's a little too much like wacky races with like skull cod pieces. You know, it's, <laughs> it wasn't something that... Well, it's Mad Max. I mean, the world of Mad Max is always... Yeah. Things yeah. welded to cars and skulls made of metal. And <laughs> yeah. It reminded me a lot of, and I'll put a link to it, is uh, there are these CGI Japanese horse races that are on YouTube where it's like crazy horse races that don't make sense. There's what? Where <laughs> you don't know this? <laughs> oh my God. There's the a lot of. Are you there, talking? There, <laughs> there's an alarming. You couldn't have picked more <laughs> bewildering words. If you still did shot context, I would send these to you and say that was Mad Max just as like a goof. But basically it's it's that there's some horse racing game in Japan that's popular and people edit the horses and stuff to make them as silly as possible and then run uh, simulations of the game to see who would win. And the horses make no sense. Like there'll be like a Mecha Godzilla horse. There'll be a horse that only walks sideways like and is standing up on like two legs. And there'll be like a horse where like it's two people standing on one horse punching each other as the horse goes. And that's their like thing. So it's like a wacky racist type thing where like none of it makes sense. And they try to see which none of any of this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. These are two hour like YouTube videos, but you can find the ones that are like two minutes long. But it's a, it's what an are you obsession. doing watching these. <laughs> I'm not watching the two hour ones, but the two minute ones are pretty fucking amazing. But that's that's Mad Max for me. That's the death of cinema. Two hour <laughs> horse races. <laughs> Completely simulated CGI nonsensical horse races. That's it. That's when we've races. given up. That's yeah. that's the state of movies now. Is here's some fucking weird horses. <laughs> it, it's you called like Jap Japan World Cup. It it just has this completely innocuous name. Oh my god. What were you gonna say? Oh, I was, well, you said it was the death of cinema, but honestly, like if if somebody had the balls huh. to make that and put it out <laughs> in a theater, I'd be I'd be there. Well, that is Absolutely. sort of the feel of Fury Road, though, <laughs> like Fury Road does. You do have this feel of somebody had the balls to do this. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a magnificent insanity to that movie. Yeah. When it gets going, there's there's shit in that movie that, you know, just is absurdly fun and and out there and all done, you know, for real and just yeah. as beautifully shot. I mean, I, I always liked the Mad Max movies, but they always felt sort of limited by, you know, the fact that none of them were particularly high budget and none of them, um, yeah. you know, it, it, there were just a lot of limitations. This oh, is the absolutely. only one that feels like it didn't have any limitations. And Miller, yeah. Miller really rose to that challenge. It, it feels just insane that movie yeah you're a big fan of uh mel gibson unlike uh jane do you yeah who should be relieved to know that he's not in the new one it's, yeah it's tom hardy <laughs> it's not gibson but you i i i think i mean he's a terrible person and i feel bad for him because i think he really he had such a fucked up father and such a fucked up childhood yeah. that he had no chance but he's yeah. like you know most of the great actors oliver reed klaus kinski all of them you know they they really were fucked up. Yeah. And yeah. a big part, I think, of being a great actor is being fucked up. And yeah. I, I think to that end, I really, the more I go back and watch stuff again and the more I see it and the more I really think about it, I think Mel Gibson might have been the greatest actor who was alive in the era where we had cameras. That's a, that's a pretty hot take. <laughs> it's a bold. I mean, but if you went back to like 1988 yeah. before anybody hated him, and threw yeah. that out there, people might agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, you were I saying think a lot of this is colored by the fact that everybody hates him personally now. Yeah. Which I understand very well, much. He I think he didn't have 
like as he got older i don't know like i like these actors like tom cruise and stuff that have kind of like started doing this crazy shit and had i don't even know if like i don't even say a comeback because tom cruise never really like you know, didn't go anywhere to come back from. It's almost like a reimagining Cruise's of their own. entire yeah. style, by the way, is is a mimicry of Gibson's style. And nobody talks about it. Yeah. But like the famous Tom Cruise run that everybody always talks about. Go back <laughs> and watch Lethal Weapon 1 again when Gibson is running on the highway. And you'll find out where Tom Cruise learned how to run on camera. Because he <laughs> learned it from Lethal Weapon some, 1. You should do some YouTube uh, comparison, you know, cut things. Yeah, their runs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, video essay. <laughs> but he, you know, I really like the stuff that he did, you know, like in the <laughs> 80s, whatever, when he was younger. But I think that because the only thing that he's put out is like, I don't know, that puppet, the beaver puppet movie. Yeah. And yeah. then him being a giant asshole everybody just kind of forgot <laughs> yeah sure but i mean look at all the shit pacino and de niro put out yeah oh yeah i mean they basically spit on all the acting they were doing no, back in the day and they still get this sort of grace period still being like oh they were the best of all time who frankly de niro i wouldn't even put that high up pacino i would but if yeah, i had to pick anyone yeah. from taxi driver i'd pick kaitel mm. yeah I mean, not to say no, De Niro I, isn't great, but he's not, you know, I wouldn't put him in my top like five or ten. The Bounty no. is uh, the Bounty's your pick for Gibson is one of your favorites, right? They're all up there. I mean, he really does a lot in Road Warrior without a lot. He's like 16 lines of dialogue in Road Warrior or something like that. Yeah. I mean, Lethal Weapon 1, he's fucking brilliant in. Yeah. And I yeah. still think, and people, especially Shakespeare, people will fight me on this, but they can go fuck themselves because I know as much <laughs> Shakespeare as they do. And it... it had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I still think Gibson was the best Hamlet on camera. He was the perfect for camera Hamlet. Mm. He knew exactly how to act not on a stage. And he's the yeah. only one where when he gives the um, Alas Poor Yark speech, it's the only one where it doesn't feel like he's reading something. Mm. He's. Do you know how fucking hard it is in the 20th century to make Hamlet feel spontaneous? I'll tell you yeah. exactly how hard it is. He's literally the only one to ever do it, yeah. ever. That is a character where every great actor basically in history was like, yeah, let me try this. And he's the only one to ever do that with it, ever. I mean, Gibson will go in in a yeah. way you yeah. don't see a lot. And he'll do it while also remaining completely, almost like supernaturally charismatic at the same time. Yeah, You know, that scene yeah. in Lethal Weapon where he's got the gun to his head and he's watching the Looney Tunes cartoon... <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the whirlwind of different shades of despair he's going through in that scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like moment for moment, the 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 taste of his despair is changing and it's changing perfectly in tune to, you know, like where his eyes are. Mm. And it's just this unreal bit of nonverbal acting that yeah. I mean. I, I I can't understand watching it and not saying that is one of the best of all time. When people I, talk I would, about, I'd go uh, Gibson number one and probably Charlie Chaplin number two. I mean, like Gibson is just historically great. When people talk about Daniel Day Lewis, uh, I always think of like that scene in There Will Be Blood where he just completely breaks down and he's being torn at down. the church. Yeah, but that's mm. that's Gibson in Lethal Weapon. That that amount of like just 
purely breaking down in yeah. that scene. Yeah. That's just something Gibson's doing in an action movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is is really incredible. Yeah. And the way Gibson can do that and then ping pong and also be like in the se- in the scenes like trying to banter with Danny Glover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like doing both of those in the same movie. But then, you know, even in those br- bantering scenes, there's this like slight edge of desperation to all of them. And it's just Lethal Weapon 1. That's probably the best lead acting performance in an action movie I think I've ever seen. It's like him and like Sigourney and Aliens, mm. yeah. you know, and Sigourney Weaver, as rightly so, gets all the credit in the world. for that. I mean, she got an Oscar nomination for Aliens. Yeah. yeah. But Gibson and Lethal Weapon just, you know, nobody gives a shit. All yeah. the all the all the credit he should be getting for that, I think, is going to um, Bruce Willis and Die Hard, yep. who was really yeah. good in Die Hard. Yeah. Not yeah. to take anything away from him, but the the essays on acting Gibson is writing in that first Lethal Weapon, and to do it all in a movie that doesn't have any right to be as good as it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say like just the fact that he cared, you know, like nobody cares that much anymore, especially not in an action movie. But the fact that he cared to try that hard is pretty incredible. Absolutely. All right, we're going to wrap it up here. Sydney, we got to have you back. That was really, really fun. Yeah, I had fun. And I would definitely, you know, next time we think of some, you know, giant epic topic that <laughs> I'm totally unqualified to <laughs> debate. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're all, love to. we're all unqualified. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we tackle it as best we can. And uh, definitely subscribe to Sydney on Twitter. If you like Twitter film people, she's one of our favorites. Wild Palm City on Twitter. That's her name. And uh, she's always posting great stuff. Thanks again for coming on. Any any (laughs) final words for our listeners? Um, I don't think so. You know, I I say I say it on Twitter, you know, yeah, follow me on there. And what's the last good movie you saw? Um. Let me think about that for a second. Um, because the last movie that I watched was like Hellraiser 4. So I got <laughs> backtracked from there. Let me think. One Watch. time I got, I had a bad hangover and I watched Hellraiser Hellworld. And I was too hungover yeah. to like get up and change the channel. And it was like the worst oh, morning God. of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty... Um, Actually, you know, Hellraiser 4, it was like, it starts off in space, and I was like, oh, hell yeah, like space, (laughs) Hellraiser, that's what I'm really here for. But then it's like all flashbacks, and by the time it gets back into space at the end, it's like too little too late, man. Is that the one with Adam Scott with long hair in it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's almost worth it for that, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I would say so. Hair metal band hair, Adam Scott. But I'm looking, I actually, okay, so I checked my letterbox. So the last good one I saw was uh, Black Sea, which um, came out last year or I don't know if it came out. Yeah, last year with um, Jude Law submarine movie, mm. which I would recommend to people who have my same aesthetic of submarine movies and grumpy burly ragtag <laughs> teams of guys but it was totally like under the radar like i went and rented it but um it's 
basically Jude Law and a bunch of Russian and English guys decide to go get some Nazi gold off the bottom of the sea in a World War II submarine. So it sounds rad. Yeah, I think I, John, I think you, I think you'd be into it, but I I really like Jude Law. He totally look, he watched Jaws and was like, I'm going to be Quint in this movie. (laughs) Right. That's the only thing that he is trying to do. And so I think it's like, if it sounds really interesting to you, you'll probably like it, but I wouldn't recommend it to anyone if you're like, oh yeah, I guess that sounds okay or whatever, but it was Michael Smiley in it, who I really like super crazy looking English guy from space and a bunch of other stuff. But is he um, the delivery guy in space? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was in that other, whatever that horror movie was that kill list. He was, Oh yeah. Um, He's really good. I really like him. He was the, it was the only part I really liked of kill list. He was in something else I saw not too long ago. Maybe was he in a field in England? Yes, he is. I haven't watched that yet, but he is in that. That one's pretty cool. He's he's uh, really freaky in it. Yeah, he's good. He's he's good in Black Sea. I really I always enjoy it when I when he pops up. So cool. I could see myself getting nostalgic for like a submarine movie. Like that's yeah. that's my childhood, you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a submarine heist. Yeah. I mean, I'm down. I'm all about that. Yeah. So check it out <laughs> maybe we'll have you back for a submarine movie episode yeah that oh, would be a good I definitely all right we're doing that yes all let's right. do please <laughs> thanks again sydney and thank you thank for you. listening oh i have one last thought by the way about our our main topic that i wanted to say and then forgot about um <laughs> but i think it's kind of important so we can end on it and this will be food for thought for all of us and for our viewers you can write in about this. Perfect. Okay, we were talking about this idea of the great myth and the idea of the um, the great myth coming in while there is still vitality and security in the old system, certitude in that myth, and the new system striving to create its own form, right? So this mm-hmm. this idea of, uh, of an old system kind of breaking apart and a new one sort of flowering. When did movies get good and who started doing movies? Movies were started by the Victorians, right? And movies mm-hmm. first started to enter pop culture and started to be taken seriously right after World War One, which was the the war that famously destroyed the um, Victorian way of life and was sort of the epicenter of the birthplace of the um, of modernity. So maybe there's something there that it was yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a, a movement, an artistic movement of that moment. Mm. And maybe that moment is coming to an end. Or what is there going to be another moment in which people who care about film have no choice but to overthrow (laughs) what's going on now and start over? I'd like to think so. I mean, I don't think we're still done with the fallout from the World War One stuff. I mean, everything we're still dealing with across the world is all, you know, arbitrary World War One fights still going on, including all the civil rights stuff that's that's in the past five years or so came to the forefront again. Yeah. So I think there's still room for this thing to flourish, but something to think about, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll have a part two podcast on it. Yeah, we <laughs> might have to. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>